break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 16th of June, 2021. Plenty for you here on the show. We're going to be talking about the rich getting a lot richer. We're going to be talking about tensions rising in the Horn of Africa. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with the massive affordable housing shortage here in the United States. The National Association of Realtors, one of the nation's most prominent pro-business lobbies, has released a new report exclusive to the Wall Street Journal this morning warning that there's a massive housing deficit in the country, a shortage of five and a half million homes. The situation, they say, calls for a a once-in-a-generation level of action by the government and they urge legislators to consider housing construction and any upcoming infrastructure package. David Bank, one of the authors of the report, told the journal, quote, the scale of the problem is so large. We need affordable housing. We need market rate. We need single family. We need multifamily, he said. As the journal details, the report's five and a half million dwelling shortage that's out there includes deficits of about two million as it concerns single family homes, 1.1 million in terms of buildings with two to four units and 2.4 million units in buildings of at least five units, end quote. Now, there are a lot of elements to this, but bottom line, the realtors aren't exactly wrong. There is a housing shortage, but it's mainly an affordable housing shortage. Now, the important thing to remember here is that housing is produced for profit, not to house people. For instance, as the journal noted in an article earlier this year, quote, the mix of newly built homes has also changed with large, expensive homes making up a greater share of home building activity. Here's another way to look at this reality of housing being produced for profit, not for people. There are 10.8 million extremely low income renters in the country. There are, however, only 7.4 million units out there that they could afford. There are about 12 and a half million renters who make more than the area median income. And there are 46.2 million units out there in the country that they can afford. So you can see how the housing deficit affects you is essentially based on how much money you make. And it results in a perverse incentive. So as the Realtors report, quote, the number of existing homes on the market fell to 1,030,000 units at the end of January, a record low in data going back to 1982. What they don't report, however, is that the Census Bureau, which tracks vacant dwellings, notes that over 7 million homes will be vacant in the U.S. this year because they are being held off the market. That is, the owners don't think they will make enough money, so they just leave them empty. So again, the housing shortage is relative. One important element of this is how the gap is measured. It's measured by looking at the rate of home building to household formation. Household formation is basically the number of new people who file as a head of household on their taxes each year. Household growth, though, is expected to be weak over the next decade because it's harder for people to economically set up their own households, and those who do are economically less able to purchase the homes on the market. And that, my friends, is what the Realtors Report is all about. 
Their policy prescriptions include, quote, expanding the tax credit program for low-income rental housing, encouraging renovation of distressed properties, and offering incentives to cities and states to reduce regulatory limits on housing density. The association also supports converting commercial buildings for residential use, end quote. And just to translate that, that means they want lavish subsidies to build housing for working class people, lavish subsidies to build basically any form of home or dwelling, to change zoning rules to be able to build on any little piece of land they can find anywhere, and also lavish subsidies given over to developers to convert commercial buildings to rentals. Bottom line, they want a ton of corporate welfare to keep their business going because they're worried people's living conditions are set to be so bad their business model won't be sustainable. So it's not so much that there's an overall shortage of housing, but they know that what housing stock is created will not meet the needs of the vast majority of people who won't be able to afford a lot of it. And thus, they want a huge amount of corporate welfare to make sure their business model continues to make big profits. So bottom line, we need more affordable housing without a doubt. But providing people with the right to housing can only happen with a serious break from the quote unquote housing market that prioritizes supply based on income rather than people's needs. Tensions in Africa are rising in the Horn region in particular, but also all the way up the Nile River to Egypt as conflict over Ethiopia's massive new Grand Renaissance Dam continues between that country, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt, while forces internal to Ethiopia continue an armed struggle there against both Ethiopian and the Eritrean government. Yesterday, the Arab League tried to break the logjam between Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, an effort that was flatly rejected by Ethiopia, leaving the stalled African Union talks as the only real forum for engagement. The dam is 80% complete and partially filled with water. When complete in 2023, it will be the seventh largest hydroelectric power plant in the world, and it's crucial to Ethiopia's attempts to combat poverty. The dispute, as Al Jazeera lays out, is about how Ethiopia should fill and replenish the reservoir and how much water it would release downstream in case of a multi-year drought. Egypt gets about 90% of its water from the Nile, and they're concerned that because of the dam, they won't get enough water. Sudan is concerned about the same issue, but also whether their own dams along the Nile River will be affected. Climate change is, of course, driving up drought-like conditions in the Nile River Basin. But very few experts are predicting that the dam is going to have much of a major impact at all, noting that dam or no dam, climate change is creating a major problem for the downstream countries, really for the whole world. Egypt and Sudan recently held war games called the Guardians of the Nile. Now, they said this had nothing to do with Ethiopia, but it's called the Guardians of the Nile. Given everything you just heard, it certainly implies something. And there are widespread fears that the conflict could result in a war. And all sides say they're working overtime to avoid that, but it certainly still seems like an option that is looming over the region nonetheless. And this is all happening as Ethiopia and Eritrea remain in conflict with the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front in the Ethiopian region of Tigray. And that conflict has made world headlines pretty frequently due to the hundreds of thousands of people facing famine conditions due to the conflict, according to the United Nations, and widespread accusations of brutality by Ethiopian and Eritrean forces. There is, however, no context at all given in these reports. It's important to note here that the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which used to be the ruling party in Ethiopia, launched a massive armed uprising to overthrow the Ethiopian government and then started shelling Eritrean positions across the border. The Tigrayan forces, when they ran the country, of course, were known for being quite brutal themselves. And it was something that was just much less remarked on since they were also very close allies of U.S. imperialism. 
Ethiopia's current government has embarked on a path that is focusing on economic development and multinational unity in a diverse nation. And it's important to note that alleged human rights abuses in Ethiopia only seem to matter when the government is an abject lackey of the West. Ali Selassie, for instance, is not known around the world for famines and brutal feudalism, but Ethiopia's socialist government that ruled from 1977 to 1991 is somehow only known for the worst things you could say about them, not say the mass literacy campaigns they engaged in and the path-breaking land reforms that freed millions from the bonds of feudalism. So this isn't to deny any particular accusation. I'm sure the fighting is quite brutal. But the way the Ethiopian government has been immediately demonized around the world with zero context about what's going on should certainly raise some questions about whether or not we're getting the whole story about what's happening in the region. Either way, it's clear tensions are very high and increasing all across the Horn of Africa with significant potential to deepen multiple conflicts and possibly start new wars. A new report from the Institute for Policy Studies details the massive increases in wealth among America's wealthiest oligarchic families, proving yet again that merit isn't what's placing wealthy people at the very top of the economic food chain. The report notes that the 50 wealthiest families, all billionaires, have a combined wealth of $1.2 trillion in assets. By comparison, the bottom half of all U.S. households and estimated 65 million families shared a combined total wealth of just twice that at $2.5 trillion. The report also details that, quote, dynastic family wealth grew 10 times the rate of ordinary families. For the 27 families that were both on the Forbes 400 list in 1983 and the Forbes Billion Dollar Dynasties list in 2020, their combined assets have grown by 1,007% over those 37 years. The 27 families on the Forbes list this past year who were on the Forbes list in 83 had a median increase in their net worth of 904% over those 37 years. And the five wealthiest dynastic families in the U.S. have seen their wealth increase by a median 2,484% from 1983 to 2020. The report notes, for instance, that, quote, the Mars Candy Dynasty has seen its wealth increase 3,517% over the past 37 years, from $2.6 billion in 1983 to $94 billion by 2020. And they further note that once at the top, these folks tend to stay there, detailing that, quote, dynastic wealth is persistent and is becoming increasingly persistent over time. Of the top 50 dynastically wealthy families on the 2020 Forbes Billion Dollar Dynasties list, 27 were also on the Forbes list in 1983, Of the 20 wealthiest families on the list in 2020, 13 were already in the top 20 in 1983. Only four of the top 20 wealth dynasties are new to the list since 1983. And the report from the Institute for Policy Studies also lays out how, quote, dynastic families are able to use their personal and corporate wealth to lobby directly for tax, labor, and trade policies favorable to their businesses and investments. Members of the Bush, Mars, Koch, and Walton families have together spent more than $120 million over the past 10 years on lobbying in these areas, end quote. They also note how some of these families, like the Marriott family, have their own political action committees giving out millions of dollars. The members of the Mars Candy dynasty are highly engaged in lobbying to reduce their own taxes. In 2005, they lobbied to eliminate the Virginia estate tax. The family corporation Mars Inc. has spent more than $20 million over the past 10 years in lobbying efforts. They spent $1.3 million in lobbying in 2020 alone, 720000 of which was spent on, quote, issues related to estate and gift tax reform. 
Now, while many of these people are known as quote-unquote great philanthropists, IPS details that they aren't really giving all that much money away. Saying that, quote, the top 50 wealth dynasties, which have a total wealth of $1.2 trillion, have put just $51 billion into an estimated 248 family foundations, the equivalent of one Gates Foundation. These foundations pay out grants for working charities at a median 5.7% each year, just slightly higher than the mandated minimum payout rate, end quote. So there you have it. What's the easiest way to succeed in the U.S.? Well, looks like it's to be born rich. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 